an adaptation of Will the Real St. Nicholas Please Stand Up? And Indeed He Did by Ogden Nash, 1963. Once there was a saint called Nicholas of Myra, whose reputation for veracity was better than Ananias and Sapphira. He was indignant over the vulgarization of his public image. He said he hardly dared to step out into public afraid of the shame because some obese buffoon known as Santa Claus had misappropriated his good name. He said wherever he might go, he was confronted by this Santa Claus, or one of a thousand facsimiles bellowing ho ho ho, none of whom had any decency or pride because they wore their red flannels outside. He just didn't want them to confuse Santa Claus with him. He said that this was a humiliation he had been forced to endure, mostly thanks to one Clement Clark Moore. Although the so-called hero of the poem was really Santa Claus, masquerading as a saint, for him this was obvious because, if he did say so himself, he was an authentic saint and nobody's jolly old elf, and if further proof were needed that the identity was transposed, why, he had never seen a reindeer in his life much less a population so disposed. We have entered the Becoming Human Podcast Christmas Edition Part 2. Last episode, the goal was to explore the history that led to the modern version of Santa Claus and look at how Christmas developed over time. Because this whole concept of a winter festival is a ubiquitous one. And a lot of what we have today results from ages of people interacting with this time of year. Essentially, the Christmas-slash-holiday season is not new, nor is Santa Claus, and we should be honest about that. We should also be aware of where this stuff comes from, and why it came to be, and how it got here, but that was last episode. And we ended with the acknowledgement that we hadn't quite fleshed out the whole history. I left a whole century or so out. Clement Clark Moore and Thomas Nash gave us the first semblance of our modern rendition, but what about the North Pole? and the toy thing, and the ethos of naughty and nice and Rudolph and Christmas lights, which were originally live candles, at least we've gotten the safety thing down, or you have garland or wreaths or eggnog, all of that. But more importantly, is there anything further to say about St. Nicholas? Well, yes. This monk turned bishop from Myra in the third and fourth centuries with rather legendary stories. What do we do with that? What does that look like within our modern winter festivals? Especially since Santa Claus has kind of become the enigmatic figure globally associated with all of this, leaving St. Nicholas an obscure reference or nickname for the one we actually care about. And what does all of this say about our culture and those of us who live in it? Should we tell our children about this part too? Does all of this help them belong to the human experience? That's where I want to go in this episode because I do think this conversation can be constructive. It can help inform how we live, and it's just good stuff to know. So let's get into it. Let's learn, let's grow, and let's become more human using the example of the one and only St. Nicholas. Real quick, before we get into it, I do all of this as a side project Becoming Human is a platform for audio content and essays where I write about how we can grow and develop as human beings within the world by learning and living, all of which can be found at tylerkleberger.com. 
If you're willing to support this work, I'd appreciate it. There's an email list if you want me to send out content whenever it's produced. It's literally all I use that for. You can subscribe to the podcast, which actually helps. Reviews are great. If you're willing to just press pause real real quick and assign some stars or even write your opinion, especially on Apple Podcasts, that helps. Um, however, as I am the only person behind this platform, I literally research, write, design, produce, edit, market, all of that on my own. Sharing the show or the content, it's the most helpful thing you can do. Um, and finally, if you feel like any of this is worth your financial support, you can do that at a website called Coffee, which is kind of like Patreon with a monthly membership, but you can also just leave a one-time tip So that's ko-fi.com slash becoming human. But thanks for listening. It means a lot, seriously. So let's get into it. I played my hand that you should tell your children about Santa Claus with this big picture view because it can actually make the season more meaningful than the, the, you know, the singular globalized conglomeration that we just kind of assume. But I also think this conversation can be even more constructive beyond the parenting question. The whole ethos and mythological meta-narrative of Santa Claus reveals something here that, that can offer some ethical opportunities, or at least some ethical considerations. And the point I want to make is that I kind of think it's a shame that St. Nicholas has been reduced to a single day, with very minimal reference to who he actually was. And I think it's a shame that his fame has been usurped by this mythic Santa Claus figure, which only took a few decades with the right technology and public image. As it goes, Santa appeal sells. So let's pick up where we left off last time and see if there's anything else behind the normal conversation of stealing a magical season or lying to your kids about how we should approach the Christmas season and all these specific traditions we have today. We stopped at about the 1820s, which was an interesting time, a very revolutionary time in history. Governments were changing, political ideas were shifting, economics and technology were exponentially altering the perspective of existence and life itself, and the world was getting smaller. Of course, we are aware of this. We, we might not always associate those strains of history uh, with the rise of Christmas traditions, however. But here we are. We got Jesus' birthday and Santa Claus, Hanukkah and Kwanzaa. There are dozens of holidays, the winter solstice, a, a plethora of traditions. There's nativity scenes and decorated trees, lights and poinsettias and mistletoes and eggnog and reindeer and gift lists and shopping frenzies. And some try to divide the religious from the cultural. Some, some try to combine them, which is why most Christians don't even know what Advent is anymore, despite it being an essential religious experience for the very act of Christmas and the belief in incarnation, but that's a whole other topic. I'm just saying we're a confusing bunch. And honestly, part of this is just because we don't have isolated tribes and cultural traditions. That could be a good thing. They've congealed. This was the situation of the 19th century when it comes to Santa Claus. And this is where what we have now really began. It's new. But that was last episode. So where did it go from here? Certainly, you still had well-meaning religious folks trying to 
capture the quaint season with its ritual symbolism. And there were the esoteric poems that really gave this season its magic feeling that we so enshrine today. But there was also money to be made. Let me be clear. The financial aspect is not the only dynamic involved with Christmas taking on the popularity it did with the details that it did. But it was a major reason. Yes, a lot of the ways we view and celebrate Christmas and the holiday season came about by the greater force of commercial profit, which, which makes sense, sociologically at least. This was the age of industrialism. As the economic policy of mercantilism faded, it was replaced by new models that were aimed at increasing national GDP. Technology also spurred the capability of producing lots of stuff that you now had to sell to make a profit. Now, I'll refer to my episodes on economics for further reference if you want to get into that. That's episodes 28 and 29. But this shift drastically altered civilization. You know, the local general store became the supermarket. Luxury goods became a driving force to individual identity and notions of what it means to exist even. So when you get to the 1820s, you have this season that happens to be at the end of the commercial year that deals with gifts, gifts that were once just about showing kindness or supplementing survival during the winter, and you have the rising popularity of an apocal gift giver. The end of the quarter approached. Boosting sales was important. This is all a very brief explanation, but a cultural icon magically putting toys and goodies and stockings for children offered a magical season that was also a great opportunity to increase margins at the end of the year. I'm not trying to be rebellious or subversive here. This is literally what happened, even though it wasn't like some cabal meeting in a dark basement planning all of this out. In the 1940s, you see the first stores offering Christmas and holiday sales. Uh, soon after, they began enticing families to come and shop with life-size Santa models, of course, depicted from Clark's poem and Thomas Nast images. How did it happen that everyone used the same image? Think about this. Was there some global meeting where everyone agreed what they would have this new character called Santa Claus look like? Everyone made sure they had their details right and mass-produced these cloned things to celebrate Christmas so that, you know, one could be in every town. No, one store did it. It worked. Another store saw it and did the same thing. Replication by market success. Then, someone decided to have a live Santa. This was the upper hand in the competition. Then other stores had to keep up. And now you have the problem of how, how can Santa be at all these different malls at the same time? Well, they're just helpers, right? Yeah. The, the outcome, though, was too good to let go for the sake of keeping the story straight. Sales increased, and so did the marketing tactics. Fast forward to the 1920s. And using Santa Claus to inspire gift buying in December is no longer innovative. It's just the required standard. Then came the monumental year of 1924. I want you to think of what one of the most nostalgic moments is in the United States popular culture when it comes to holiday traditions. Maybe a giant parade on Thanksgiving, another holiday with an interesting backstory, 
and that parade being capped off by Santa himself ringing in the holiday season, such a wondrous moment began in 1924. What a great idea. You do know the name of the parade, right? Macy's, the department store. Thank goodness Macy's went out of their way to bring Santa all the way to the United States so that we could officially start Santa's busiest season and reap in the rewards. Then came 1926, where they had a wonderful idea. Remember that poem about St. Nicholas? Well, in it, he had reindeer. Weird. What does that have to do with Jesus' incarnation? Doesn't matter. It's the mix of traditional cultures and their winter festivals congealing, so Macy's teamed up with a reindeer meat salesman. And before the reindeer were slaughtered, he would rent them out to Macy's. In 1926, you have your first full display with Santa, his sleigh, and the reindeer. Was Macy's simply remembering the saint called Nicholas and honoring this magical narrative that was gaining steam? Or was it an opportunity to outdo the competition and increase sales? Now, let's stop for a second. This doesn't make it bad. Be honest. Most of our world today works the exact same way and we all do it. I don't know that we would want the alternative. And it can still be nostalgic and beautiful and magical and meaningful. But let's not pretend that it's something that it isn't. Now, they weren't the only one in this competition. Montgomery Ward was the other big shot at the time, and in 1939, Montgomery Ward struck back. They initiated a campaign that every kid who came to the store would get a coloring book. And not just any coloring book, a coloring book of Santa and all the traditions now revolving around his Christmas Eve process. Which means they had to flesh out what those images would look like which means that the people who colored those images were given tactile depictions of these things. How do you get an entire population to share the same imagery of something? Well, you give them the same coloring book, and now those abstract blanks are filled in. The same thing happens with flannel graphs in Sunday school to the point that you have entire generations thinking Jesus and Moses were white. Anyway, did kids come to the store? Absolutely, with their parents who bought stuff from the store. But they did something else too. They added a character. Because they had to get ahead. They couldn't just have the North Pole and Santa and the reindeer. They had to do something different than Macy's. And this, my friends, is how Rudolph the reindeer was born. Who was initially going to be called Rolo. We should bring that back. And the parents flocked with their kids. For department stores, this process was essential. But that doesn't cover all the details yet. You, you may be wondering, what about other aspects of the Santa story? What about how, how Santa does the gift giving and comes up with the stuff? All that. Well, these are mostly the results of songs. See, there isn't some edict or mythological epic that spelled it all out. People were watching the traditional mantras come alive in real time. And most of these all came right around World War II. Just so we're on the same page, that wasn't that long ago. Literally, the common Christmas music that we hear all of the time all came within roughly one decade. People have tried to write new songs for the Christmas season, and they just don't catch on like these. Why? Because these were the first, and they resulted in a particular style and sound and lyrical content 
that has been hard to replicate, let alone change. So 1934 gave us the start. Santa Claus is coming to town. This is where uh, we got the list he checks twice. The 1940s gave us a few unique ones too. Uh, one came out that gave Rolo, uh, I mean Rudolph, a red nose. Rocking around the Christmas tree, you know, the Christmas tree being a whole other story here. White Christmas. And you know what's interesting? Many of these were written by Irving Berlin. He was a staunch Christmas supporter who sought to create a Christmas narrative for the generations, you know, like the Christmas version of J.R.R. Tolkien. That's a lie. Irving Berlin was a Jewish man from Russia who was trying to make an honest income through music. So he wrote the songs and sold many of them because it was easier to capitalize on the cultural phenomenon that people were paying lots of money for than to make it as an independent musician. This is a lot of how we got Christmas. You know, you can throw in the early Christmas movies as well that people still watch nostalgically today. The modern version of the Winter Festival in the United States and other Western cultures, this is where it comes from. And, and really, this is how Santa Claus was born. It wasn't sentimental fireside chats on some real narrative. It was commercial, shopping campaigns to entice consumers. It might still mostly be that. From Clement Clark Moore and the early Dutch honoring the saint to this. And I wonder if those early Dutch settlers would be confused, you know, if they walked through a mall in December. What I'm more confident in, however, is that if we could bring back St. Nicholas, you know, as Ogden Nash's opening poem emphasized, I think St. Nicholas would be a bit disappointed, maybe even angry. Back in 2011, I was fortunate to have an experience that catalyzed my journey of asking these kinds of questions. It was by accident, too. I was walking around a city in the height of December's vibe. The weather was mild and the atmosphere was festive. And I found myself entering a free exhibit in what appeared to be a random art hall. As I walked in, I was immediately met by a life-size Santa model. And my interest was piqued, so I kept going and came to find that this was an exhibit called The Spirit of Giving from Around the World. How interesting. And at this point, I was pretty enmeshed in the modern presumptions of Christmas. There's Christmas, there's other holidays, there's churches and synagogues doing stuff, and there's Santa, and the kids love Santa, and it's magical. How nice. Well, th this exhibit's premise was to show how the archetype of a Santa Claus figure has been around for a long time, and in a diverse range of places. And I should say, this was my first encounter of seeing that the contemporary version of the Winter Festival was not an immortal singularity. There was a context. There was a history and development over time. Santa Claus as the North Pole elf hiring toy maker, for me, was put in his proper place. Uh, among the exhibit, there was, of course, Sinterklaas of the early American and Dutch background, Chris Kringle, which I thought was just Santa's formal name or something, he was there. Grandfather Frost from Russia, who was a good-hearted man who traveled around Russia on New Year's Eve. There was Hopsidor from Ukraine, who on January 5th, which is the Eastern Orthodox Christmas Eve, went around with a decorative shaft of wheat tied with a ritual towel. 
And then further away, there were other examples. The Haitian women of the Caribbean who would be opulently dressed, holding a baby and a basket of fruit. There was La Bafana of Italy, uh, who may have been a precursor of one going down a chimney. And she would bring gifts and firewood, which actually makes a little more sense with the chimney thing. Or there was Dun Che Loren of China, who during the Holy Birth Festival brought gifts for children. Julesven of Norway, a gift bringer in the Norse tradition in their midwinter festival, who would hide lucky barley stalks around the house. Viejo Pacera in Latin American countries with holiday treats, poinsettias, and piñatas full of gifts. Which is a great packaging method, by the way. Uh, but would also bring chickens for families, which starts kind of connecting with the whole St. Nicholas thing. There were other ones from Poland, France, Ireland, the Middle East. And as I've come to find out, there are tons more who the exhibit didn't even display. And one of my first thoughts was, when people get weird about kids and Santa, and there's this whole refrain of, you should tell your children about Santa Claus, how could you ruin that from them? What I found myself thinking with this, you know, should I tell my children about Santa is, which one do they mean? How come none of these other versions became the singular version? Why weren't these characters dressed up in malls? Seriously, what was it about this one version of Santa Claus that obviously evolved from some of these other instances? What it is about this one that made this story the only one we tell? When there are lots of stories that come from the same concept and the same kind of season. Like I said, Santa Appeal sells. Now, as I began diving into this brand new world, one thing really stood out to me. First, that the general story for a lot of the characters in this exhibit, especially of European descent, seemed to have a singular source of inspiration. Secondly, the figure who was the source of inspiration seems starkly opposed to what had become normal in my 21st century American experience of Christmas with the epitomal Santa Claus. That source, of course, was the one and only St. Nicholas. So I began reading everything I could about St. Nicholas, and obviously that led me to my current state of being. But what stood out to me, as one enmeshed in a particular version of Santa Claus, who was now learning about St. Nicholas, was just how real the stark contrast was. Then I started learning about how it evolved, and I just got this sense that something, something didn't add up. The figure of St. Nicholas was this monumental presence. He was a radical confrontation to the church in the 4th century, who had drastically changed under the Emperor Constantine. And he stood against injustice and was absolutely bent on bringing the whole peace on earth thing. That, that seemed to connect really well. On the other side, as Ogden Nash's poem explicitly calls out, you have a relatively obese man magically sweeping down a chimney to give affluent kids more stuff that they don't need. Nicholas of Myra was one who would knock at the door after sneaking through the cover of darkness to avoid authorities, and help people literally at the end of their hopeless rope. He rescued women from slavery. He would leave a bag of gold for a family about to lose everything. His gifts dealt with, like, actually saving someone's life, or protecting vulnerable people, or ensuring the survival of children. He, he was about bringing tangible, material, experiential peace to people so that they could go and do the same. 
I heard it said, you're on your last crust of bread. Keep an eye on your window because St. Nicholas might show up. And, and yes, he was a bishop, which means it sounds like he took his understanding of Jesus as a poor peasant trying to heal the world quite seriously. That's the essence of St. Nick as a gift giver. He lifted the lowly, the misfits, the abandoned, the destitute, and the broken to bring health and life and peace. He was the practical manifestation of the incarnation story. And this is why he was also the patriot saint of anyone in dire distress. He confronted the powerful, broke the rules, and changed the world. I mean, one scholar, Caroline Wilkinson, she's a facial anthropologist from the University of Manchester, notes that Nicholas of Myra likely had a permanently broken nose, which was probably due to the persecution he endured. Like, where's that advertisement? This is the guy who gave his inheritance to overtaxed peasants and was known for standing between an executioner and the one condemned. I just don't think St. Nicholas would be too concerned with a magical Christmas morning. He's more the guy who would kick down a door to save someone. Which makes me think that he probably wouldn't be too liked in our culture. The more I learned about St. Nicholas, the more I understood why we have changed him and his story. This isn't the kind of thing we would want from a Santa Claus figure. But I think St. Nicholas would be equally disturbed with what we have done to him and his memory today. So, how did we? take a story of a revolutionary man, like a real person who actually did this stuff, and turn it into some immortal figure living in an uninhabited land with a bunch of elves, which always makes me wonder, like, what kind of elves are these? Are, are they blood elves? Are, are these the ones from Lothlorien? And, and then there's, you know, you got the red and the green, and the whole thing is about making and preparing the same toys that you can get at the store. And then we have to find ways to prove that he can pull all of this off with his elf population and animals that fly around the world to every home in a given night. That just happens to be Christmas, which is a religious holiday and goes back to the December 6th change by the Protestants to move the gift giving to Christmas Day. And then Santa becomes the bearer of this and there's a bunch of them in the mall and it's just strange. And then you have the issue of the eternal gift giver pulling all of this off, but it always happens to be in correlation with the social and economic status of the recipients. Didn't think that one through too well. But we go, don't ruin that for the kids. It's the magic of Christmas. Well, in terms of the winter festival, which Christmas? Which version of Santa? And why is this the dominant one that we are so adamant about? Is it just because... It's a financially viable, socially emphatic, cultural narrative that coincides well with the financial and individual emphases of modern culture. And we've made it into this game that like, you have to play, which really it's just a single bend in history functioning as a derivative of stories and meaning that actually sound better when you hear them. But the myths of a culture tend to reflect a culture. It's like the Epic of Gilgamesh or the, or the Destiny of Valhalla. We have our own myth of consumption via good behavior that happens to lead to a moment of surprise that feels quite special. And if I'm honest, really it comes down to being for the sake of continued commercial profits. So yeah, I, I guess I've just been okay with 
telling that whole story, which means that I'm okay with telling my children that the thing about the modern Santa Claus is actually a story. And I don't make the story out to be bad. I don't get all rage against the machine and turn over the system. It would be a little hypocritical for me to do that while also constantly using and benefiting from that same concept 364 days of the year. Like I said earlier, we still do some of the stuff. We have presents. We have a tree. We put out the classic sacramental elements of milk and cookies, though sometimes they'll spice it up a little bit. I'll even go walk on the roof at midnight and ring some bells and yell ho, ho, ho a few times because it's a story of our world, and that's fine. And there are good parts of the story. We participate in all sorts of stories that make up our world, but my children also know it's a story. And they know where the story came from and how it developed. And I think that's okay too. We even one year had a situation where one of my children was told about the story from someone else. You know, they were talking about Santa Claus and really went all in on the Santa is real thing, which initially actually led to some fear because my kid thought someone was going to break into the house. Also a weird part of the story, but he really wanted to believe it. And this is where I get people saying, why steal that from your child? What's the big deal? So my child and I had a discussion, and I asked him where he thought the presents came from. He really, really wanted it to be Santa. The idea that someone else can magically presume gift request is a pretty powerful thing. It's like a really big and free vending machine to a child. But I told him that's not what happens. We talked about why this story is cool and how we can appreciate it. And the big thing, how they can participate in it. It's a story of our culture and it has a history to it. It has an origin to it and it has good parts. And it also has some strange parts and maybe even some bad parts. So how can we utilize the good parts? How can we still experience what is good about this? And Christmas Eve kind of becomes like a performance for us. They get to do some of the things. They aren't just consumers of like a magic show. They get to create some of that magic for the sake of our whole family. But they also get to know the larger narrative. Now, one emphasis here is that we do acknowledge all of it. The, the story part is true. Okay, I want to I be clear about that. As a story, the story is a real thing culturally. We had to have similar discussions about The Lord of the Rings. It's a fantasy movie. But the effect of the story in society is real. It's in the fabric of our cultural imagination. We talk about Christmas and winter festivals and seasons and traditions and how people use those to navigate life. And if someone uses that story, that's fine. But we also took it further because it isn't us just saying no to that story. We also try to say yes to a better one. This current story is one way people remember an important aspect of being alive, giving, peace, teleological visions, and practical ethics, especially in the harshness of winter and the change of a year. If I haven't been clear, yes, we are also adamant that they don't ruin that for anyone either. Let it be their story. Don't mess with that stuff. And yes, we still do the things, but we're not clandestine about them. Everyone is aware of what is going on when some presents seem to magically appear in the morning. But we also give them a story that we think is better. 
which is that of St. Nicholas. For example, we do the whole letter thing, but the letter is written to St. Nicholas, and we ask them to write about their year and what they admire about the saint from Myra. And we write a letter back as if in Nicholas's hand, portraying encouragement of how they have positively continued the story and some confrontation on how they need to keep growing. We give gifts too, but we focus on ways these gifts celebrate how the recipient has embodied peace and how they can use these gifts to be a positive societal force and keep growing and celebrate the lives that they're living. And maybe as a slight rebellion, we write St. Nicholas on some of the presents and not Santa Claus. Just gives a little extra clarity for everyone, I guess. We practice Advent too, a process of navigating darkness to transform how we live and view the world so that we can bring light. And we use St. Nicholas as an example. We also do the December 6th thing, trying to capture what it would have been like to have only a pair of shoes to leave out as a sign of need. And those presents that seem to magically appear, signed as if from St. Nicholas. We hope that our children might connect with those in history who were impacted by his life as opposed to trying to trick our children into good behavior. I guess my family has just accepted that we live in this world with this story. But we also like the older story. And we like that it can force us to move past some of the questionable parts of the modern story and step outside of the veneer of the force of civilization. The story of St. Nicholas, in my opinion, is just better. Sure, we, we don't want to lie to our kids, but we also don't want to keep a powerful part of history from our kids in what is an opportunistic season that we still love. We don't want to muffle the holiday spirit or steal the magic of Christmas, but we also don't want to muffle the spirit of the man from Myra or steal such a wonderful example from them either. And that's why I decided to go ahead and do these episodes. I know that most people who do the Santa Claus thing are either finding ways to justify that I'm wrong, or are going, yeah, sounds nice, but I don't see us changing that. And I get it. But the first reason that I at least wanted to put this out there is because this conversation comes up with parents a lot. Also, because I have put a ton of time into trying to figure out what this ought to look like with my family, so I figured I might as well share the conversations I've already been having quite frequently. But really, what I'm really kind of hoping for is that the St. Nicholas story can make a comeback. That the real St. Nicholas can be celebrated and and maybe, just maybe, we can put St. Nicholas back in Christmas. And I'm not saying that you need to do this I won't judge anyone who still does the Santa Claus thing. And I completely understand anyone who managed to listen to all of this and goes, nope, you're wrong. Don't mess with my nostalgia. I get it. But I will be adamant in saying, I think we have a lot to learn from Nicholas of Myra. And I think our world would be better off from embodying the world, the story, and the life that he tried to give us. Merry Christmas. Happy Winter Festivals, and good tidings during this feast time of St. Nicholas of Myra. Mm-hmm.